Thanks for tuning in to the meditation conversation. Hop on over to karagoodwin.com. You can get a free 10-minute guided meditation right on the homepage to help you experience deep levels of peace. I also have lots of resources to learn meditation and to support your practice. And of course, by supporting those services, you are supporting my work, including the production of this very podcast to assist more souls on their path to awakening. Thank you for your support and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the Meditation Conversation. I'm your host, Kara Goodwin, and today I'm so excited to be joined by James Bashara. James is a world-renowned founder of Tilt, which was acquired by Airbnb, and the creator of Magic Mind Productivity Drink. And he's an angel investor of a few multi-billion dollar companies and the host of the podcast Below the Line. In addition to his business acumen, James is passionate about spiritual development and unlocking the mysteries of existence. And this is the main thing that we're going to dive into here today. So James, welcome. It is such an honor to have you here today. Thank you for having me, Kara. I'm excited about chatting about this stuff that I spend 90% of my time thinking about and about 2% of my time talking about. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that too, because um, I, well, first let's, let's go into your journey before we get too much into that. Um, I heard you on another podcast and I, it resonated so much with me that I was really excited to have you come on here and share your journey with listeners because you have a very unique journey, um, but also very relatable. Um, and there is this element of the, the success that you have been able to, to experience. Um, but like you say, there's your heart is in a different place than, than where the, Mm -hmm. the material success is. So we'll get to that, but, um, Let's talk about your journey from tech investor to spiritual seeker. What what inspired you to go deeply into spiritual exploration? Well, I think, well, like you said, I think my story is going to sound like so many, for listeners, it probably will be very similar for them and and perhaps for you, but it is uh, really less of a seeking and more of a return of sorts. And that when I was six, I, I remember being at church and, and wanting to be a priest. And, um, and I'm sure that that was preceded by different thoughts that four or five were a resonance of, of stories. I grew up Roman Catholic of, of a resonance with these stories about God or about Christ that, that were so powerful that I just thought, okay, well, that's the that's the point of life is to think about these big questions and try to find the big answers to these big questions. And then as, as life goes on, you're convinced, no, being really good at basketball is important. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you kind of, you're like six or seven and I was and, and, and thought like, really, is that that important? And then you're eight, nine, you keep hearing the story or you hear school is really important. Our friends are really important. And, and I think it's, you know, we, 
if you don't believe in hypnotism, you know, go, uh, go watch a few YouTubes on it. And it is very, very real. We can all be hypnotized. And so you hear a message enough. I remember reading a stat that the average American um, comes across is subjected to 2,600 advertisements a day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Billboards on the highway, radios, radio ads, or um, TV for average American watching four to six hours of TV a day, social media scrolling. And so no matter how, no matter how much mental fortitude we think we have enough of another message hitting us again and again is going to hypnotize us. So I, whatever age it was, uh, maybe 14, 15, just kind of got pulled into more mundane types of pursuits that uh, my father, he taught us to, in addition to growing up uh, Roman Catholic, he taught us to meditate, taught me to meditate at eight. And it was, it's been a continuous through line in his life to have um, this unique, unique combination of, of, for him, meditation and an Eastern thread along with growing up in Dallas, Texas, a very uh, Bible belt um, and, and, and obviously a Roman Catholic kind of background. So it was always an interesting mix of spirituality, but certainly got the mundane bug. So I went and tried to do as well as I could in school, tried to, uh, to do as well as I could for my community and study development economics. And um, I worked in poverty alleviation for, for several years in South Africa, and then I discovered tech startups were were a thing. Not just a thing to do, but also that hypnotism of like, oh, that can be a more impactful thing to do. Uh, at least building software could impact. Or the nonprofit I was working for had 34 employees, and we were impacting about um, 700 individuals. And you know, building a software startup, maybe you could impact 700,000 individuals. And and uh, and so continued that kind of pursuit. And then while I was running a company with about 100 employees and my psychology was just breaking, my worldview was not serving me well. It was like, it was like I had a worldview, but it was like my, the wheels were going in reverse every time I stepped on the gas. Mm -hmm. So it was not taking me where I wanted to go. Meaning anything, like the responsibility and the success? No, is it? Well, it was... I, those were probably a part of it, but I think it was this worldview of more or less a, a very selfish, egoistic worldview of let me get mine first. And then from that place of stability, even from a background of, of development economics and uh, poverty alleviation, there's still this constant bread. And I would wax, oh, Kara, I could wax with the best of them with this uh, flowery, vision of how we were all going to collectively benefit. But when I look back at 26-year-old me, it was very much like, oh, that's the card to play. And that is maybe a portion of the equation. But the majority of the equation was very much ego engineering, financial engineering, software, build a software startup, and you get to have impact and you get to uh, have a financial, potential financial outcome that, that you, we would seek with a job. And and honestly, that's just more, more ego was mm. like, oh, there's reverence in what we're doing and financial freedom. Okay. That's way better than being an investment banker. So it was actually just a knot of, of egoism, um, and really maximal egoism, uh, to be honest, uh, to, 
to when I look back at, at how I was operating, and it was like I said, as I was pressing the gas forward, um, the wheels were going in reverse. So it was actually not just like, oh, this isn't serving me. Uh, it was a bit of a recognition and about 18 months of depression, a recognition of, oh, this is actually this worldview of let me get mine first and then I'll, once I'm in stable ground, then I'll be able to help others. Or let me help others, but let me make sure in some form or fashion it, it, it comes back, there's a halo around me. Um, or it was, I don't trust that I can exist without a whole lot of effort. I don't trust that I can be happy without immense seven days a week pushing just shoulder to the grindstone, pushing, unless I sacrifice just, um, you know, body and limb, then I, then that's the only way that I can be happy. And it's probably 10 years down the road, 30 years down the road. Mm-hmm. And, um, and all of those were pieces of, of my upbringing. And, and it was kind of like this, I had this grand unified, um, miss, mistaken theory of how I was going to become happy. It was like pulling on different threads in the most dysfunctional way. You know, it's like people trying to find the grand unified theory of relativity and and quantum mechanics and no one's quite done it. I had this grand, this misapplied, mistaken grand unified theory of like, this is how I'm going to be happy. And it's going to be 10 years on the other side, 20 years on the other side of, of a lot of work. And it was just, um, like I said, I was going in reverse instead of forward. It was making me less happy, uh, less helpful. And ultimately, what kind of broke it was I just realized in all of this pursuit to achieve stability for myself, I was becoming less useful for those around me, my wife, um, my friends. I was just waking up each morning feeling like, man, I am in a nightmare. Really? I at least had the the insight to realize this is a nightmare of my own making. I made these decisions. Um, the company was failing. I wasn't serving my employees. Certainly, you know, if you can't serve the employees and build a sustainable company, you're not serving your customers. So I wasn't serving our community. And so I, um, in the midst of it, just had this, this two pieces of insight of, okay, the purpose of life is to be uniquely useful to those around you. And I'm becoming less useful. And the other um, aspect was take full responsibility for this lack of usefulness. There was shifts in the marketplace. We had gotten uh, advice and, and really uh, dictums from our board to do a certain to, to do certain things. But I really knew. Now I I was the the biggest uh, part of this equation and and made most of I uh, had most of the responsibility. So those two things, that full responsibility and this vision, uh, or at least this, this feeling that purpose uh, for me and, and maybe for all of us was to, to find where we can be most uniquely useful. And I was not being useful. It was really, it was probably the least useful I'd ever felt from the outside. I built a company worth almost $400 million in three years and it looked like I was useful. Um, but I knew deep down the, this is, these are each year it feels like it's a, a big step backwards with this, this programming or operating system. Wow. Well, I want to know 
where you went from there. But if we can pause for a moment, just because I'm, I am very curious with what you were talking about with your dad and that knowing where you're going, where you end up, you know, as far as the Vedantic studies and things, um, the Roman Catholic, I want to pull that thread a little bit with you having this foundation of Catholicism and that real connection to spirituality um, at a young age. And it's interesting that you brought in hypnotism in that thread too, because of course, um, with a lot of like dogmatic religion, there is a lot of hypnotism and mind control Mm -hmm. in that, you know, where we keep hearing the same things and they're, you know, they're maybe not to our high, that maybe they're not the highest truth. Maybe they're not the most beneficial for people to grow. Um, I wonder what, if you can remember back to being young and being so drawn to to immerse to immersing yourself in that life as an adult, like projecting mm-hmm. into adulthood and thinking, I want that to be my life as an adult. I want to go full in as my you know service. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything in there, like in, in that? tenderness of that time did what you were learning did it feel did it resonate with you all as true or were there times where it was like well I'm not sure this is quite right I feel like when we're children even when we're indoctrinated in that sort of environment there's a part of us that's like well that's not quite right or that doesn't feel right mm-hmm. or I don't know I'm curious did did you have anything like that or was it like yep everything that's, they're telling me yeah that's such an interesting question I it would be so hard for me to to really know because it was 30 years ago now um in terms of specifics but in terms of generics yes I there was a um I think a, honestly a lot of it resonated with mm-hmm. me at six I I just and maybe it was because my mind was fully formed around that, with that as the basis and, and to uh, great um, spiritually oriented parents. Um, there was obviously a, a lot of it that did not make sense. Um, and, and to this day, it's, I, now I, I, it's actually returning to that six-year-old uh, okayness with it not making sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in my twenties, I think I I needed to find something that made complete sense. Now, at you know mid thirties, I I love the wondrous aspects. If if there is a source that I trust to be more uh, just more wise than myself, I'd say if that and that's a big if. Mm-hmm. But if there is a source that through just personal experimentation, like okay, this feels. Uh, I've seen this person has been right and actually encouraged questioning like, you know, it's it's my, my favorite spiritual teacher is, uh, is a, a guru, an an author, spiritual teacher in Malavli, India named Swami Parthasarthi. He's, he's maybe the most uh, acclaimed um, Advaita Vedanta teacher and, and, you know, living right now. And he, I was just with him two weeks ago in, in India. Uh, and he is 
95 years old and and it's uh it's a blast to to, to be with him it's it's crazy how much vitality he has at 95 but uh two of the things that he says for any spiritual practice is that um uh, every day don't take anything for granted and question everything mm-hmm. and those are it's a beautiful interplay between the two yeah. because it's don't take anything for granted this time we're having right now uh-huh. um our opportunity to have a conversation don't take that for granted but question everything it's kind of like don't take anything for granted that's gotten us to this this place you're at the beach don't take anything for granted as you look around but then question everything is almost like now going forward be extremely mindful extremely thoughtful extremely aware maybe the best word mm-hmm. uh, of what path you're going to take question everything I question what yeah. what you might want to say versus what is the truth and and not even prescriptively do one or the other but just question it um, or even maybe more deeply um, question the philosophy that's being given to you and don't do not just say okay I'm gonna blindly accept this or that um, and and having said that the same individual the same uh, author might write something that I'm like I, man, that's a, that seems super paradoxical. Sometimes I would just put it out on a shelf. In fact, he'll say, just put things on a shelf, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes it'll actually be this uh, wonderment of how can that be true? Because I, in years that so much of this has ended up being paradoxical, seemingly paradoxical, and it's so true experientially, this probably is another one of those moments. Now, how how could that be true? Because I, yeah. I intellectually, it doesn't make sense. And I think going back to when I was six, I think it was very much the same. And it was, it doesn't make sense to me, but man, this is, this is some far out stuff. There's this thing outside of me that created this, this world. There's this thing outside of me that is permanent and everything around me is growing or dying just in the process of change and there's something that's permanent not only that exists but there's something that's permanent that I could orient my life around and therefore have permanence I I imagine specifically there were questions but generically um, that type of theme that you know hooked me when I was young I'm sure six-year-old me was like I do not care if Jonah was actually in a whale or not. This larger story is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I think similarly, um, today, I, my wife and I, we go to uh, a non-denominational Christian church and uh, here in, in Santa Monica each Sunday, and, and much of the sermon might not resonate with me. Mm-hmm. But when they start talking about this Christ figure saying these, these paradoxical things that do resonate with me, I'm like, wow, there's probably, probably some truth into this, this uh, human, this likely more than just human, uh, maybe, maybe realized, partially realized, who knows, but mm-hmm. this extremely wise human for us to still be talking about what he said 2,000 years ago. Maybe there's something, something there, and and you go, you follow those threads, and 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 maybe a lot of it isn't very interesting, but some of it is 
like the concept of agapic love, that that I feel like resonates with our DNA, um, mm. no matter who you are. And yeah. you know, remove a figure with baggage out of the equation and, and just uh, you know, Google agapic love for a few minutes. It'd be pretty hard to to for it not to resonate within our within our I mean, I live quite literally our biology, our DNA, or how we have operated in our communities and mm-hmm. seen harmony, how we've operated in our communities and seen seen conflict. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. That's very insightful. And it's and, and you're right, it's it's hard to go back. It's hard to really immerse ourselves back 30 years and and truly be able to speak to where we are. Um, and I think and I resonate with there are threads of things throughout that keep us like, okay, that resonates, that resonates. I, I feel like I remember being a child in church and, and a lot of the stories getting lost on me, like with a historical context, a lot of it, you know, big words that, that were not so easy for me to understand the context. Yeah, there's that old adage, uh, the prophet must speak the language of the people. Yeah. And that's not just English. That's really understanding the language um, right. that that uh, will resonate most, that will be received best by that audience. Right. And it's, uh, part of me says that that's a lot of work, and part of me says maybe it's just there are very few prophets that can do it. Yeah, true. And, and everybody speaks a different language, not meaning literally the language, but this is something that I want to get to in a little bit too. Mm. But, you know, with... Maybe, you know, you clearly have more of an intellectual bent and the way to your spiritual nourishment is through the intellect. Like you've got to understand it. There are people with simpler minds who can't go as deeply with the intellect as you can, but they can get to it more through the heart or devotion or music or art or, you know. Um, But before we... I I say right, but... The qualifier would that I that I would uh, feel remiss to not mention is that I think it, it we really all require in my viewpoint and this is the this is also the classical Advaita Vedanta viewpoint mm-hmm. um, within within Vedanta there's uh, there's four yogas and versus Hatha Yoga which is uh, by the way Indian philosophy that might be the theme of our of our conversation. Um, because it is certainly the theme of, of my modus operandi each, each day. And, and in fact, the, the, uh, my iPad is sitting on top of four copies of Vedanta Treatise. It's just the closest, <laughs> the closest thing that, uh, it's my favorite book to give out to people. Um, and, and that it, it's, uh, by the, the author that I mentioned previously, but the, um, within, within Indian philosophy, which Western philosophy, the first Western philosopher, was um, Thales and in, in uh, Greek philosophy is Thales is largely seen as the first Western philosopher, um, and that was about 600 BC. Indian philosophy, uh, the Vedas, um, the Upanishads, um, but Vedic, Vedic philosophy was it was about 8,000 years old at that point. Wow! At that point. At that point. Wow! And we don't really know. Um, East and West, uh, just it's it, measuring dates just wasn't that important to them. Also, 
being authors of a philosophy was not important to them. It actually goes against, it's in somewhat in conflict with the, the philosophy to egoistically say like, this is my uh, contribution. It's more like, let me contribute whatever I can, um, but not necessarily with my name stamped on it. So there, there was no necessarily first Vedic thinker. There was a culmination of these, uh, these scriptures called the Vedas, four Vedas, and they were translated or they were uh, trans essentially communicated orally for thousands of years. We don't really know when they started. And then they were uh, written down um, about 5,000 years ago. So uh, by, again, and, five to 7,000 years ago, because we don't really know. And written but, um, in Sanskrit, correct? That's right. Written in Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. So uh, written in, and that's a so fascinating uh, factoid about it is because the philosophy not only was, so Thales was uh, 600 BC, then you have uh, philosophers like Socrates that obviously breaks from previous schools of thought. You have Plato that breaks from Socrates, Aristotle that breaks from Plato, and this great lineage of people essentially breaking from the previous, it might have been their direct teacher. Um, and, and you have each philosophy that lasts maybe a few hundred years, if it's really lucky, Stoicism, uh, Socratic philosophy, uh, Platonic philosophy, if it's really lucky, a few hundred, uh, few hundred years of, of a quote-unquote lineage. But in Indian philosophy or Vedic philosophy, it's now about 10,000 years in, and it's continual. Mm. And it's not just continual. Um, it also, and it, it, I wonder this question, and I, there are a handful of theories, but I wonder this question all the time of why wasn't it until I was 26 before I even heard about Eastern philosophy as a real philosophy to take seriously. If you, you know, study world philosophy um, 101, even today so, in universities, it's going to primarily be Western philosophy. Yeah. And, uh, and it's quote unquote starts with the Greeks. But the, uh, the other interesting continual thread isn't that it's just these thinkers um, expounding and, and continually building on previous thinkers within the Vedic philosophy, uh, philosophical tradition, but it's also, like you said, it's all the same language, Sanskrit, for 10,000 years. And it's not, oh, this is what that Greek word meant in context back then. And now it's been translated into, like, Christ's first words, said in Aramaic, uh, translated into first public words, translated into uh, Greek, and then translated again into Latin. And now we know... Um, that St. Jerome, when you match uh, the Greek versions of, of Christ's first public words, uh, metanoete, uh, to the Latin version, um, we all grew up kind of thinking he said repent. And actually metanoete is actual, at least the Greek, we, as best we know, the Greek um, translation, metanoete means transform your mind. And repent versus transform that's actually that's a significant difference yeah it happens because of a mistranslation that may have been completely uh, innocuous but ends up with a very different tenor it does in the way that we use repent in english but really if you think of the roots you know repent rethink re you know mm -hmm. think again which mm -hmm. would be transform your thoughts i hadn't really thought about that because of the way that we use repent in the religious tradition. That's, that's true. And well, repent would be, yes, rethink, 
transform your mind or metanoetic and can also be translated as overcome your mind. Oh. And not just not just change your thoughts, but overcome your thoughts. Oh, I got your chills. Mind or transform, but overcome your mind. Oh, and that's yeah. So much. And that's for, so much more powerful. Me, right. For me, I'd say, and, and maybe that doesn't uh, resonate with, with someone else, but for me. No, like that, that gives me full body chills. A very different, uh, a very different attitude towards Christ's first public words. But I say all of that to say that within the Vedic scriptures, uh, there's four classical yogas. There's the Hatha yoga, which we all know is the, the physical yoga. Uh, then there's karma yoga, bhakti yoga, and and uh, jnana yoga. And maybe your listeners know of, of all of these. But the three, the primary, uh, primary, I'd say spiritual yogas are karma, bhakti, and jnana. Those are just Sanskrit words that just mean action, even though we think of karma as like a reward system. It's, it's primary uh, use in this context is just action. Bhakti is devotion, which you touched on, and jnana is intellect. But within the scriptures, it's also very clear that it's a combination of all three. You might, might have the, the simplest mind where the, the simplest scripture would say, actually try a really difficult yoga pose. That is a, that's for the simplest, and it kind of moves from simplest to most subtle or the, the kind of grossest to most subtle. And for someone, honestly, maybe even like karma action isn't what they need. They need to tame their compulsion. And, you know, doing physical yoga is a great way to, to tame and contain your compulsion. But then you have something like karma action, you have bhakti, devotion, and then jnana, which might be the intellect, but it is... It just the, the scriptures are very, very clear that even the most intellectually wired person requires karma. It requires action. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, the I, mean, I always think about the greatest, one of the greatest uh, saints within the Indian philosophy of, of the last couple thousand years, uh, Shankara, he was known as the, the intellect's intellect. Like he was the intellectual's intellectual. And yet, he was building hundreds of schools, orphanages, like he had an immense amount of service. So it was, mm-hmm. he was both the, um, you know, the Socrates and the Mother Teresa of, of his time. So I, I think it's a mix of, uh, of all of them. But to your point there, I, I think there are as many paths to, to the divine as there are people on earth. And you've got to see which one you're more and, and perhaps most aligned to. Well, and this is something that I did. I wanted to talk about as well because I because we have those four branches that you talked about, and I think it it would depend. Well, in my opinion, it would depend on the individual. We all have our own life path. We have you know like a, a, a fingerprint perhaps or a footprint that we come in with. Where if we want to think about that as past life karma or, you know, our our life's purpose or what we're here, if we want to think of earth as a school, what we came here to learn or accomplish on a soul level. Um, Some of some people I think are going to like just naturally be able to absorb more of those four or express more of those four, each of those four branches. For some people, they may be on a different um, part of their journey where it's just one. You know, it's like, I'm just here to serve. That is what I'm really focused on. That's why I'm here. Um, 
And I wonder how about they, your... How will they know how to serve bets? Well, I'm. this is the thing is that I don't... I wonder how much of it is the need to intellectually know for every single person and how much of it is... So we've got... You talked about like you may have inherent strengths or you may have inherent like places where you're already taking your... Um, your, you know, for example, if we stay with the service, like maybe it just is very natural. People like to, somebody likes to volunteer. It's just a very natural giving sort of way that they've always expressed themselves. So if they're wanting to be more deliberate about their spiritual evolution, kind of using the Vedantic philosophy, what are your thoughts about whether they kind of stay in where they're comfortable and naturally drawn and sort of go deep in that in that sort of, not lineage, but that quadrant mm. versus sometimes we get stagnant when we're too comfortable and we're mm -hmm. actually here to expand and to kind of explore out just on the edges of our comfort zone, which may take us right. into more of a, like you, you gave that example with the Hatha yoga, like maybe, you know, for somebody who has a compulsive nature they need to master their body more um i don't know i because i, I kind of go back and forth where it's like do you go where you're more naturally drawn or is that part of the evolution with mm -hmm. with vedantic studies i don't know do you have any thoughts or is that even a clear question think, <laughs> no well it's uh it is it's a it's a really interesting question because it is um it gets to what to do mm -hmm. and that is a question that all of us ask ourselves what to do and you might have the best intentions of uh, you know it's I think that there is so I we I just started a, a podcast called yoga for your intellect mm -hmm. and I started with my teacher Joseph who's uh, he's been studying and teaching Vedanta for a couple decades and but he uh, grew up in Texas like me and so it's it is and he's keen on both surf so it is very conversational and yet, he and I both, the only topic we really, uh, maybe surfing, but then the real topic we want to talk about is, is spirituality and, and is uh, all oriented towards what is the goal. And the goal for us is, uh, the goal for myself is, is waking up. And, um, and so if that's the goal, then everything really ladders up to that. And for someone that might be more service-oriented, action-oriented, I'm always building building things. I, I can't stop myself from starting companies, from building things. I'm very action oriented. Um, and action being, you know, that conduit when it's in the right point in the right direction service. And, and I think someone else might be very service oriented that is in the midst of volunteering, but actually what I've seen in the nonprofit realm over and over again, burnout happens in the nonprofit realm faster than it happens in the tech realm. Really? Oh, it is, it is a, it's like a cliche that someone is going to start with a lot of this fervor and excitement to jump in as a volunteer, which is the worst, because then they really, all they have to go on is their idea of how they're going to just, most of the time, how they're going to feel so good from service. And, and again, it might be the best intentions, but it's only a matter of time before 
two months in, three months into that volunteer work with like, hey, James, I know I had this commitment. I had volunteers um, roll up to me at, and at my nonprofit that I worked at. It's like, hey, James, I know I had this commitment for this Thursday, but this thing came up. Hey, James, I know we had this commitment on Saturday, but uh, so-and-so in my family is sick. And it's just like, okay, this is, this is an arc. I've seen a thousand times and it's happening right now. They're piecing out. So how can you make service, energy, action, energy? And this is uh, Vedantically, this is uh, a definite, the definition of right action would be that which generates energy. And energy, basically action that generates energy, that takes a lot of devotion and intellect to really know, oh, this is action that is going to generate energy. And part of that is to what you're touching on, your nature, what action, where, and that's why I love the question of where can you be uniquely useful? Mm. Each word is so powerful there is, and is by design uniquely useful. Not where can you be useful today in 17 different directions, but where you, Kara, can you be uniquely useful in a way that the five people to your, to your right, the five people to your left, oh, they're not built that way to be useful in this way. And that takes a lot of understanding of yourself. That actually is a lot of reflection. Mm-hmm. That is a lot of listening. And the intellect is, the, that takes a lot of intellectual horsepower to say, you know what, I'm so busy doing. This morning, I actually am just going to sit and listen. Mm-hmm. I'm going to listen to whether whether it's a sermon, a lecture, uh, a podcast, but I'm actually I'm actually going to listen to it. And maybe it's a podcast you listened to two weeks ago and you got you you knew it it hit you like a ton of bricks, but you also knew you were driving, you're doing dishes, you were working out, you were in you were volunteering, whatever it was, you were so in the mode of action you weren't able to employ the intellect, I'm happy to tell you the, the very quick 30-second line on, on what the intellect is, but um, you weren't able to employ the intellect to say, you know what, this hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm actually going to carve out time to really listen to it again and, and maybe really listen to it for the first time. Then it's five times more powerful. In fact, in, in uh, some of the Veda, Vedantic Scriptures, they'd say it's 100,000 times more powerful to reflect than it is to listen. Mm-hmm. And listening is its own. That it's so difficult mm-hmm. uh, to listen in its own right, and it's 100,000 times more powerful to reflect. Okay, and listen, then I'm actually going to reflect on the three takeaways that I loved in that podcast for three days in a row. That's the intellect being employed to say, okay, I'm actually going to stick with, I'm not going to jump from exciting thing to exciting thing because I know there was something, there was a deep well there that I tapped into. Mm-hmm. But instead of escaping into the next podcast and the next message and the next goodie bag that maybe lights me up inside, but I'm not getting much out of because I don't remember three weeks later, much less three years later, I'm actually going to say, no, I'm going to stick with this for three mornings in a row and just reflect after, you know, that first morning of really listening. Mm-hmm. Then that's four days. That might help you in your path of realizing, okay, where can I be uniquely useful? And in that orientation, it's kind of like a you know the rocket that is misaligned by three inches in, at the end, headed to the moon. It's fine. 
But the rocket that's misaligned by three inches at launch is 100,000 miles off course by the time it gets anywhere close to the moon. So I'd say karma is one of the most action, service, feel free to not use any of the Sanskrit terms, but action and service, that's one of the most important realms to employ the intellect. Um, or bhakti being devotion, what is the service for? Christianity is, modern Christianity is very devotional. Um, what is this service for if you can't employ the devotional side of, oh, this is for the Christ that I love, that I know and love, that I'm learning to love more. That is very much stepping out of service or action, plopping food at the food bank and going in and, and potentially getting to burnout, feeling bored, feeling tired, feeling like I'm not getting much out of this like I used to the first three weeks. You dip into devotion or you dip into intellect of, oh, maybe I could volunteer at the food bank. Maybe there's something that I can uniquely do that maybe the people on my left and right can't do. And that might be energy generated. I love that. And I, I love pulling it back to like the energetic piece to it, because when we think from a physics perspective or from like a, a even chemical perspective, you know, when we make up the, the human entity, there's an electrical piece and there's a magnetic piece. And we can equate those two intellect, you know, thinking mind and the emotional body. And it is often said that the emotional body is that magnetic piece to us that helps to draw more of what we want. And, you know, more of that devotion, more of that juice, you know, it's going to mm -hmm. keep us wanting to learn more because there's something inherent that is um, helping to feed that drive. I have experienced, you know, I, um, I, I very much have always valued the intellect, um, you know, well before I had any sort of awakening. I come from an IT background, uh, much more humble background than, than the experiences that you've had, more just corporate, you know, it's layperson. Hard, hard to get more humbling than the experiences I've had if you really <laughs> saw that. Why well, I named my podcast Below the Line. People want to talk about the real <laughs> versions quite humble. Well, I'll just say like peon level, you know, I've been very much like peon level, but, um, but I, you know, I, I have come from you know business degree working for like blue chip companies and, and very like material world, uh, background. And, and then, you know, a few years ago now had an, uh, had a, an awakening or kind of a rolling awakening, um, where I opened more and more and more and more to the the mystery of life and to things like the you know the yogic studies and the uh, philosophical studies and and um, and some of the the metaphysical things as well. Um, mm. But for me, the intellect was almost almost because I have a very rational mind. There have been times where it has almost been a hindrance. Because I, I have tended to view things as so black and white, you know, and it's like always this or is it my mm -hmm. imagination or did I just see a flash of light, you know, in, in meditation right. or was it this or this? And, you know, a really um, powerful mentor that I had kept 
trying to break me of that. And it was like, yes. You know, every time it was like, was it this or this? It was like, yes. You know, I love that. I I love that. If I, if I ever wrote a spiritual book, it'd be called the gospel of both because I I agree. I think these things are both. Yeah. And and we are so wired to find, no, no, no. It's gotta be one or the other. When so much of it is, oh no, there's some good in here. There's some bad in here. And there's some good in this one and bad in this one. Yes. And, and it is, so it's, but it's things like that where it's like, well, you can't, it can't be black and white. How can you tell me it can be black and white? How can that be my imagination and real? You know, all of these, and I, I have a hundred examples like that where I would just bang my head against the wall. Like it can't be both, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. but it's right. because I have this rational, logical mind about the, the physical laws in which we live in this dimension on this planet, you know, and how do things work? And it's been this softening, this continued softening and surrender into the, the unknown, into the mystery, into this humility of, of relearning of the possibilities and, and kind of in a lot of ways wiping the slate clean and saying, you know, some of this is just going to have to be trust where like my intellect can only, like my rational mind can't get there, you know, Mm -hmm. with, with some of the things you can take that even on the metaphysical where, you know, some of the things that, that they're, um, that they're looking at when you, when you do start going down some of the experiments, like how can a particle be a wave and, or how can a light be a wave and a particle? How can it be both? Mm -hmm. But, But it's, it just depends on who's observing it and what they want to see. Like, how how can that be? <laughs> you know, but it's well, this suspension of like of what we think we know. And but anyway, it's been a relearning for me. A lot of my uh, growth has come through having to relax my intellect and and let go a little bit intellectually. And then there's that emotional piece to it. Or, or the feeling piece to it that I've I've had to like open up to and trust more where it's like just this like even if I can't explain it I can feel it and I know it whether that's a truth whether it's an actual mm-hmm. sensation to do with meditation or or whatever it is um and so I wonder if if any of that resonates with you with with this because you know, when you talk about, for example, the uh, the devotional piece, you know, it's like for me that would be more of like bringing in the emotion, more of bringing in the mag the magnetic of it, and just the feeling and kind of surrendering the the need to intellectually understand, mm-hmm. and just having there be a connection. I don't know if that well, makes sense. Well, the, it's you're certainly touching on uh, areas that I think many of us. Um, have experienced, and that is that is this this place where, um, in many ways, we try to articulate our way through problems, mm. and and a lot of times it's experiential. In fact, one of the things that that I I think about often is, and you you asked about that comfort that that um, balance of comfort and discomfort. I think a lot of these things are are very related. And the reason they, they seem related to me is uh, really actually touching on a very exacting kind of part of what you mentioned. Intellect 
we have a lot of baggage with that with that word here in the West. Um, and intellect means oftentimes intellectuals. But I'd say intellectuals are more like intelligence. They have immense, anyone could have a, a immense intelligence and, and not be able to pull that into experiential knowing. Mm-hmm. You might have the intelligence that there is poison uh, underneath your sink with a toddler crawling around. I might tell that to you and you not do anything about it. I'm like, okay, James, thanks for telling me. All right, bye, close the door. Like, no, no, that's, there's a lot of anthrax right under your sink. And that's super easy for a, your, maybe you got a toddler in the house. You have the intelligence, but you are not doing anything with it. You may even intellectualize it. Like, wow, how much could that, how much anthrax is that? What could that kill? And not have it actually uh, flow into your actual experiential knowing of like, oh, now I get it. And intellect, uh, the Sanskrit word is buddhi, which is similar root for Buddha, awaken, the awakened one. And the buddhi, which is, uh, is so much more than just intellect. You can think about it also like awareness. So not like you hear like, oh, uh, Vedanta, which is very jnani, it's very um, jnana yoga. It's very uh, intellect yoga driven, especially um, uh, a book like Vedanta Treatise. It has all three. Uh, it has uh, Im- Im- extreme importance for car- for action and service, for devotion, and for the intellect. But the intellect isn't the uh, science the scientists in the lab in 1981 that is an intellectual that listens to NPR. Um, you could be a complete moron in terms of how to design uh, your life, how to help others, and still be an intellectual. This would be more like awareness. In fact, one of my favorite definitions of intellect is the uh, same definition you could give to wisdom is the capacity to see the end in the beginning. Ooh. And so the definition of intellect is far closer to a word like awareness. Cultivating intellect is cultivating awareness. It's cultivating this uh, capacity to see, oh, this thing that I'm doing is not going to serve me very well within two hours, much less two or three weeks, much less five years. That intellect is the thing that that awareness, um, growing that awareness, it's like a muscle and it needs to be invested in. But the more you invest in it, the more you build it, the more you build that muscle, the more you can draw on it to help you with that. Maybe it's related to service. Maybe it's related to action. Or maybe it's related to, okay, one drink, I'm driving. I really shouldn't have a second drink. It could be related, and it often is so related to the very mundane aspects of our lives of, "Mm, maybe I shouldn't tell that white lie because Mm. it could come back and it could destroy the trust that I have with this coworker. It's just not worth it. That's the intellect. It's not the scientist that has, uh, that has just donated $10,000 to NPR. Mm-hmm. It is much more the awareness of, oh, wow, I have this immense devotion to money. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing all of these things for money. I've got this attachment to, to wealth or name, fame, status, power, attachment to this other person. Maybe I should check that a little bit. Or 
I enjoy, I loved that, that sermon or that lecture or that podcast. Maybe I should listen to it again because I, I know me and I probably will forget within five days what I loved about it. That's that awareness. That's the intellect. I love that. And it, I, I would like to follow that thread just with the last few minutes that we have here because you have this unique experience where, you know, by all Western standards, you know, you've achieved enormous success um, all by the tender age of 35. Or are you 36 now? 36, right. <laughs> 36. And yet, you know, listening to you now and listening to the interviews that I've listened to um, with you, it's it's clear that spirituality is, is filling your cup more than anything else. So the majority of our population can only dream of experiencing the type of experience, material experiences that you've had with business. Um, and yet what lights you up is something that's accessible to every single person. So I don't know what you make of that dichotomy, you know, I, because you have this. Uh, well, I think you, I think you, um, nail, you may not know just how much you nailed it with the, the phrase of, uh, dreaming it up. And, uh, and those, I really, I, re, I am so thankful for the, all of the times where things blew up. In fact, there's far more valuable. In fact, when I was running my my company that that into the story is in three years taken to a four hundred million dollar valuation at twenty six and eighteen months later we sold it for a basically a fire sale to Airbnb and a fraction of that and I'm so I haven't learned anything I've been a lucky investor and I've been a a, a lucky collaborator in a few projects but I haven't learned anything much from <laughs> investing. Really? And by being at the tip of the spear of creating and it completely blowing up, oh, it's just the most, it was the most beautiful experience because it did highlight, I had all of these things on paper, the same things, right? Uh, I guess I might check boxes now, but I had them in, uh, in ways 10 years ago and I saw how meaningless they really, how, not even meaningless, just how little they little they did for me in terms of happiness and like i said i was checking these boxes on external validation or um things on paper but i was becoming less and less useful i mean mm -hmm. I, it, it was noticeable mm -hmm. like I, I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning oh, wow. didn't want to go into the 15 meetings i had just imagine just how someone looks and feels uh vibrationally energetically when they don't want to be in one meeting much less 15 every day mm. i was i was uh yeah certainly not being useful and it was getting worse and i knew it i, I really knew that it was going in the wrong direction almost all of carl jung's uh work in psychoanalysis came down to the observation that people are are uh, depressed when they feel stuck and usually stuck in an existential situation. They do not know how to, it's okay to be stuck in, to be in an existential crisis if you know how to get out of it. It's, I mean, if you have the solution to a problem, you no longer have the problem. It's when you're stuck and you do not know how to get out, that's when, um, when things feel dire. 
It's even worse. I take it a step further and say, when every move you're making is making it worse, you're getting more and more stuck. Um, I'm so thankful that I had that experience in a modicum of awareness to realize uh, that this is of my own doing. I probably need to reorient myself. I, I didn't finish that, that chronology, but I started to listen to a lot of Alan Watts uh, on just on YouTube. And then this was back of, when you were 26. In, yeah. 26, probably for four years, listened to two or three hours a day. So it was a couple thousand hours of listen to every uh, one of his lectures 30 times over and uh, every audio book and beautiful British philosophy is a great bridge uh, between intermediary between the East and West in the forties, fifties and sixties. It's a British um, Episcopalian priest actually, and then moved to the U S and, and, uh, and then moved to San Francisco. It was just unbelievable articulate philosopher and intermediary. But then after four years in his last year of his life, he was a, 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 there was an interview and he never talked about his own metaphysics. He never said what his own influence was. And he's, uh, if you, if anyone wants to search Alan Watts on YouTube, you can just search by, you know, view count and watch these unbelievably articulate lectures. A lot of, there's this whole like cottage industry of people adding them to music and it's beautiful um, four or five minute clips of, of his melodic voice. And, and so you can get lost in it for thousands of hours like I did in, but he, and with him never mentioning his own Influence. influences, his right, his own um, kind of subscription. And in this interview, the last year of his life, this interviewer asked, so what are your influences? What are your primary influences um, today? And this is the year he died. And he said, my primary influences are Advaita Vedanta and Roman Catholicism. No kidding. And yes, but mo both of them were, were a surprise to me because he spent all of his time talking about Eastern philosophy. So the Roman Catholicism, and he was an Episcopalian priest, so that took me by surprise. But the Advaita Vedanta piece, I was like, wait, what is this Vedanta thing? Oh. And because he talks so much more, mentions terms like Zen or Taoism, Buddhism, so much more. And yet this is, you know, the latest in his life that you could get a snapshot of. And he's saying Advaita Vedanta. And he's at that time, one of the most prominent uh, explorers of all of Eastern philosophy. I, okay, I got to check this stuff out. And a month later, went to uh, a, a hotel and on the little placard in the hotel, it said, yoga, 8.30 a.m. And this is, in the, this is four years into this exploration, to this rewiring, reorientation to um, a psychology that was working for me. We ended up selling the company, ended up starting to invest. Everything was just becoming far more uh, effortless in fact, why that that concept of, of material wealth is 10x since I started orienting myself towards, uh, I think for me, a healthier psychology and philosophy. My appreciation of Christianity is also probably 10x. Mm. My uh, effortfulness in each day is probably decreased by 10x, 10%. I mean, it, it is... Uh, I think it was Thoreau that said, whatever you do, do it lightly. Everything just feels much lighter because of a much healthier psychological worldview. Um, but at this hotel, I see uh, 8.30 a.m. yoga, 9 a.m. yoga for your intellect. And I was like, damn, what is, what is yoga for your intellect? 
Mm. I've got to go check that out. This four years end of thousands of hours of Alan Watson. And I just knew there was something brilliant there. And went there and, and uh, this, the same yoga, to go to the yoga first and then go to the yoga for your intellect. And the same guy walks over to a whiteboard and said, oh, you want to join this class too? Great. Sits down, he puts on the board three letters, B-M-I, body, mind, intellect. So, okay, well, we'll t- we're going to go through yoga for your intellect. And it all starts with these three equipments that all humans have. You've been told and you, you everyone knows that you've got a, bo- a body, one knows that you've got a mind. The central contribution of this philosophy of Vedanta. And I was like, holy shit. Oh, this the- is Vedanta. It's like a month later, I, I'm lightly looking into it. And he, he says, the central contribution of this philosophy, this ancient Indian philosophy of Vedanta, is that you also have this other internal equipment in addition to a mind, and it is called the intellect. The intellect, undeveloped, your mind runs wild, like a four-year-old driving a Ferrari. Intellect, when honed, when developed, that is someone that can conquer the world. So few people develop the intellect And it's because there isn't a philosophy in the world that even tells you you have an intellect. And yet every one of us knows, we use phrases like mindset. Well, what sets the mind? Mm -hmm. Uh, Frame of mind. Well, what frames the mind? And so he goes through this and I'm like, oh my God. Not only is each one of these points making sense of body, mind, intellect, and you you have these these aspects where you, you you have this higher self telling the lower self what, Maybe this isn't the right thing to do. And you know, it resonated experientially. It also, it was this beautiful mix of known and unknown. And that's to your, to your question of comfort and discomfort. I think we always, we always benefit from that, that beautiful, brilliant line of right on the known and the unknown. Mm. And that comfort and discomfort. In fact, flow state is actually designed, uh, defined as this, um, ever dynamic challenge of familiarity and novelty of known and unknown comfort and discomfort. And it's ever dynamic challenge. Meaning the challenge is always right outside your, your, uh, Mm. your grasp. That's, that's when we are the most dynamic. That's when we're flow state. That's when we forget the world even exists. We're just lost in whatever we're writing or the game we're playing or the, the conversation we're having. Mm-hmm. It's, it's on the right side of healthy challenge. So it's just on the right side of uncomfortability. It's just on the right side of unknown. Too much of it, and it's overwhelming. Too little of it, and that comfort, six weeks on the beach drinking Mai Tais, you will be as big of a disaster as you would be six weeks into a project that's too overwhelming. But all of it came kind of crashing down in this conversation with, um, or really all of it came talk about grand unified theory of all these different things I was thinking about, loved of Buddhism, Taoism, Christianity, uh, Platonism, Socratic philosophy of just knowing service felt so good to me. Knowing devotion to a cause higher than me felt so good to me. And then it all kind of unified into this body, mind, intellect. Intellect is this other internal equipment that um, we don't develop and no other school of, of philosophy, not out of like a narrative thing, of just kind of wonderment, why doesn't any other philosophical school talk about this? Um, 
and Vedanta has been talking about for 10,000 years. We do see bits of it in, in Western philosophy. Jung, the higher self, the capital S self. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, um, famous uh, German idealism is basically Vedanta, but maybe 50 years of excavation, 100 years of excavation versus maybe what the German philosophers like Kant or, uh, or British philosophers like Barclay would, maybe they'd figure out in a lineage of a couple hundred more years, but it's they're very similar area codes. So we see pieces of this, um, but I had never heard it said so succinctly. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, okay, next step, next unknown is for me to buy this book, <laughs> Dante Treatise. And then from there, uh, six years later, it's every day and, and every day it's this beautiful unfolding. Wow. Thank you for, for taking us through that. Now, within that, did you get to do your three minute? Was that with when you were talking about the body, that's, mind, intellect? Is that what you wanted to go through? That's part of it. I, I think it's important for us to, to make sure we make time for that. I mean, I had more questions, but I, this has been a beautiful, well-rounded conversation. So, Well, thank you for, for having and facilitating Oh, it's, it's really been uh, my this joy. Is, like I, well, it, it is a like I said, I never get to talk about this stuff, and it's all I really think about. So, except for that's why I started uh, with Joseph, who was that teacher that wrote BMI, body, mind, intellect on the the whiteboard. Chatted with him every week for six years, and then earlier this year we started Yoga for Your Intellect, a podcast, and and just built around our weekly conversations. So. Um, that's when I do get to indulge, but the, um, but yeah, the, the three minute overview of, uh, Advaita Vedanta means non-dual end of knowledge. It's just Sanskrit words. It's not, um, we get, I think we can get lost in, in foreign exotic sounding words, but it just means, uh, non-dual end of knowledge and non-dual meaning not, not two. Not necessarily one, because one could imply a border. Um, infinite isn't necessarily one. That's why one does not equal infinity. But it is not two, it's not dualistic, and it's not separate. So even previously when I said good and bad, things have good and bad into them, there's this concept that the world is made up of opposites of good and bad or uh, hot and cold, whatever the opposites are. But ultimately, Vedanta says, as you progress through philosophical reflection, you realize there is no distinction. There is no black and white. There just mm-hmm. is. Um, there is no supreme being that's separate from us. Supreme being isn't a noun. It is a verb. And it is that which you can tap into. In fact, that is what, that is our natural state. Ooh, wait. Is, supreme is being that, is that verb. Is a verb. Right. Okay. That. That is really powerful. Supreme well, and that's being, that's yeah. one of the the ways that you can think about non-dual is that it's it's not necessarily a descriptive, an adjective for a noun. It's more of a way of operating to where it is not two. There isn't you and me. Mm-hmm. Similarly, as it ladders up to this concept of a supreme being, it's not only not separate from you and I, but supreme being itself is not. A noun, that is a verb. It's an experience, yeah. Right. And it's what, that, that is our natural state. The, um, 
It is when we get caught up in dualistic thinking, we fall from this. There is that fault, that separation. Diabolus, uh, root of the word, uh, you know, diabolical, and uh, the root of Greek word for Satan. Diabolos is actually thrown apart, separated. Oh. So, so the um, the three-minute overview of, of Vedanta is, so it, Vedanta means end of knowledge, culmination of knowledge. Also, it's the end of the Vedas, where the philosophical aspects of the Vedic philosophy, Vedic scriptures are, are held. Because the Vedas has every, every, it's everything from medicines to cooking to hunting. It's basically all culture written in these four Vedas. But the end of the Vedas is um, the philosophy. It's the worldview. It's how to view the world in which you're going to cook, serve, um, hunt. And that philosophy, Vedanta, uh, basically has three, think of it like if it was a metaphorical book, it it would have three chapters in it. The first chapter would basically be that the world, uh, a, a life is a stream of experiences. It's all a life is. That's what the ancient thinkers really identified or, or uh, defined a life as a stream of experiences. And within a stream of experiences, you have a unit of an experience. And within an experience that you and I might have, there is the subject and then the environment. There is you and the room that you're in, you and the wave you're surfing, the, the weather that you know is outside of you know, the drive that you're on. There's you and the environment. Within an experience, to make it a great experience, you could focus on changing that environment, um, trying to change the weather, trying to change a wave, or you could focus on changing that subject. Instead of going externally and trying to change, I'm going to get a bigger house, I'm going to get a better job, I'm going to basically pushing back a wave. There's just so many variables in that outside environment to try to change. Um, compared to like trying to straighten the dog's tail. Just always there's more to that's going to come, you know, you might with a lot of energy, 20s, 30s, 40s, and when we're young, we can maybe try to get it as good as we, as, we, as we possibly can, but then we get older and it just, life comes crashing out. That wave uh, cannot be pushed back any further. Or you can focus on the subject, change the subject to improve the experience. Vedanta would say it's far more efficient to focus on the subject. Change that subject. Change yourself in that scenario um, to where instead of just miserable pushing up that that bar at the gym, you're realizing, man, I'm getting stronger because of this resistance. That work experience that is so hard is, is an absolute burden for you. That is actually making you more useful to those around you. So... That is kind of the first chapters. You could focus on the, the environment or the subject. It's far more efficient to focus on the subject. Within the subject, I already mentioned that maybe the central contribution of Vedanta is um, that within that subject, within yourself, you've got a body, a mind, and an intellect. And that you have this other inner equipment beyond just a mind. Your mind runs wild, but you actually have an equipment called the intellect to help gather it. And without... You'd rather not have a powerful mind. You'd rather not have a four-year-old in the you know, driver's seat of a Ferrari. Um, you'd rather have like a four-year-old in a driver's seat of like you know, a, a little pretend car. Yeah. Um, than to have no intellect and a powerful mind. We all kind of know those characters mm-hmm. with no intellect and powerful minds. They end up doing things that are either self-destructive or communally destructive. 
But the, um, the development of the intellect is a daily, a daily exercise, a daily investment with just maybe it's two pages a day of a spiritual text that you love that speaks to you. But it's each day you're investing in it. I'd read Vedanta Treatise every morning. Um, and that development of the intellect then is the key to developing that subject that then is the key to making that experience better. If you kind of go backwards in that, in that book. But the third chapter of the book um, and the, the end of this metaphorical book is, uh, according to Vedanta, is that all of this is an illusion. The whole world is an illusion. And Vedanta, because it has its roots five to 10,000 years old, more likely to the, to the latter 10,000 years of, of this concept of, of all of the world is an illusion, all of the universe, our experiences are an illusion. Um, it's the source of all Eastern philosophy. Uh, Hinduism as a culture is built on and religion is built on top of it. Vedanta has no shoulds or shouldn'ts. It isn't a religion. It's just here are viewpoints like you would be reading E equals MC squared. Mm -hmm. But um, the we can't help ourselves. We Humans, we want to add culture, add ritual to it, add religiosity to it. And then you have Buddhism that is, uh, as they say, it's Hinduism made for export as it leaves India, and it can't bring the culture with it. The philosophy gets distilled, enters China, Zen being a Japanese derivation of Buddhism and, and so on. All of it comes back down to Vedanta, and all of it really comes down to this uh, end of the, the, this metaphorical book, insight that these sages and saints and, and awakens um, souls tell us that all of this is an illusion and none of it is real. That is not like um, it isn't happening on some relative uh, scale. On a relative scale, we are having this conversation, but it's compared to last night, you and I, maybe you had a dream last night. There were walls, there was gravity, people were wearing shoes, people were wearing clothes. There was light, maybe it was nighttime and there was absence of, uh, of light, but that was an illusion. And yet you were, you were absolutely convinced it was real while you were in it. And it actually had all of this immaculate detail to it that told you it's real. And in addition, what's so wild is you were, you now in the waking state, you know that that was unreal. And yet you didn't even know what was going to happen. There was drama to it. You didn't know what was going to And you were creating the whole thing. And Vedanta would say, this waking state, you have a deep sleep state where no one's dreaming. You have a dreaming state that a reference to last night you're dreaming. And then you have this third state, a waking state, where it's an elevated version of that dream. Mm -hmm. You can pithily just say it's a long, it's a long dream. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's any more real then that dream was that we were so convinced. I was so convinced my dream last night was real. Mm -hmm. And uh, Vedanta's kind of culminating um, point and contribution to our worldview is that there's a fourth state that so uh, people call it by any number of names. Satori, Moksha, Nirvana, Liberation, Enlightenment, um, Turiya. It doesn't really, heaven, it doesn't really matter what you call it. It's just saying there is this fourth state to awaken from this illusion. And that's Vedanta kind of beginning to end. That is 
Beautiful. Thank you so much. It resonates so much, um, particularly that metaphor of dreaming, you know, where it, it is. I mean, we all, it's so relatable where we're, we're so convinced when we're asleep. And, and I tend to write down my dreams. So um, just because there's a lot of symbolism in dreams and um, it has helped me to be able to remember my dreams more easily as I've developed the habit of writing them down. But so many times I will wake up and I'll be like, I don't need to write that one down. I will never, there's no way I'll forget because it feels so real when you're just waking up. And then it's like, no idea, you know, five minutes later. I mean, they're the slipperiest things, but, and, and I've had some, um, multidimensional experiences where I've like popped out, you know, and then you're, you're experiencing exactly what you're talking about where it's like, it's all geometry or it's, Hmm. it's, you know, something it's, it's all light, but it's like in a dome kind of, you know, it it doesn't, it's very uh, symmetrical and beautiful. And it's like, it feels like you're witnessing something it's like I'm, you're not imagining it. It's very visceral, um, and and it's clearly not something that we deal with in the physical realm. But so so many things of what you're saying totally totally resonate, um, and it's amazing that the, this philosophy is so ancient. You know that that this is is what did you say ten thousand oh, eight thousand yeah ten thousand ten thousand years old is our is uh, our best guess that it's been orally communicated the the Vedic scriptures have been orally communicated it's, and it, it, that's why I said when I was twenty six I was like how did I spend twenty six years through great educational institutions here in the West and never come across this and the closest we get um, is for the most part in in the West. Is maybe physical yoga because we obsess about the body. Yeah. And then we get something like Buddhism. And Buddhism enters the West um, post-World War II in a big way, and, and especially in the 80s and 90s, especially Zen in the 90s. And that is almost a direct consequence of Japan economically almost overtaking the U.S., and our obsession with material wealth made us say, what are they doing over there that we might be able to learn from? And we come across this ancient philosophy that they study. Uh-huh. It's actually the most perverse, it, whether it's physical yoga and, and the forgetfulness of or the ignorance, the fact that physical yoga is like, that's 5% of what yoga is in India. Yeah. Um, it's these other yogas that are far more, uh, far more philosophically and far more culturally important. But we're like, oh, yoga is... Um, you know, downward dog. Right. And we and think, you, and we think Buddhism, oh, that's Eastern philosophy. And or Zen, oh, that's the culmination of Eastern philosophy. And it really was our material fascination that it? even made us uh, less ignorant that there was a philosophy called Zen. I think over time, Vedanta will, we will just, our curiosity will continue and it will take us to, okay, what is the simplest, most straightforward, most, like you said, uh, resonant. These, these concepts, might they might sound strange, and yet, especially in Vedanta, they're presented so um, Accessibly, clearly, maybe. Accessibly, that mm. you're like, God, this, there's nothing woo-woo about this. I think there's something yeah. here. And I think that that's why I just 
I think there's, uh, we're going to see like a Google trend map over the next 20, 30 years of Vedanta, just out of maybe just people's curiosity of right. people becoming much more curious about it. Well, and I love what you're saying about the root of how these things have come to the West. And you talk about yoga being, you know, so focused on the exercise. In my understanding, you would know better than I do, but the r- yoga it means union. It's it's mm-hmm. not the exercise. It's it, it, the root of it is union, which is you know what we're doing right now, where it's this coming together and this like collaboration. The the how how do we kind of fit together, and how does right. your worldview and my worldview, or or beyond the worldview, or whatever you know, how how do these beautifully weave together into this new tapestry that that we make, you know, based on our two perspectives and, and you expand that, but that's, and and you expand that in your life. Like, how are you creating this whole tapestry? I loved how you talked about, um, within the, um, the Upanishads or within the, the Vedantic, um, texts or, you know, that, that it applies mm-hmm. to the Vedic cooking. scriptures or Upanishads. Yeah. Yeah. It applies to cooking it applies to hunting. It applies to your life in the culture, in that context, and such it, so it is also with yoga, it's way beyond, it's meant to be, you know, just way beyond the body. So we've kind of just explored from a Western philosophy in these last decades where yoga's taken off, but we've been focused so much on the exercise, the physical exercise. It's like we've, you know, just, just barely seen the tip of what's available in mm-hmm. it. Um, and but what is beautiful about it is uh, that uh, it is both the gospel of both. What is beautiful is we are starting to collectively wake up to okay maybe this we've seen some of the peaks of Western materialism and that isn't it yeah and maybe it might be something else and let's uh, potentially listen to what the world has to offer or the world has been offering for. 10,000 years, and maybe there's something to reflect on there. And how beautifully does that tie back to your own personal journey and how your studies have all, your your Vedantic studies, you know, even came about in the first place where it was like this misdirection, you know, you were going, you were trusting like where the West was taking you, where, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the hypnotism and where you were uh, convinced, you know, through just living, just absorbing the culture and, and the messaging um, of how to be happy, how to have a successful life, and then realizing that it was misguided, even though you were following it, you know, in a very, like, in, in kind of like the... the upper echelon experience of, of how you could experience success in terms of the West. And then it's kind of, if we relate that back to what you're just saying as a culture, as a collective of how we're having that art, that experience, um, of, of trying it out. Okay. Here's what we think yoga is. And, Mm -hmm. and let's explore that. And well, there's still, there's still stuff missing. It's not like taking me as far as I expect it to. And so what is the missing piece? Let's keep, let's keep exploring. Let's keep expanding. And yeah. From the known, from the known to the unknown. And it's to steal a a great line from Alan Watts. He, 
you would say it's um, religion is is religare. It, it means to to rejoin. Yoga is union, and to disjoin, to disunite is to dismember, and become dismembered, become separated. Therefore, union yoga is to remember. And at 36, 30, at 26, at 52, wherever we are, uh, in that moment where it might feel like a crisis, maybe it is taking you back to when you were six. Beautiful. All right. Thank you you so so much. much. This has been amazing. What a joy to connect with you. And, um, and thank you for the extra time. I know you have to run, but this has really been an honor and a joy. uh, Likewise, honors all mine and, and really appreciate it. So thank you for having me. Thank you, James. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'd love for you to do me one quick favor, which is to think of one person who would benefit from hearing this content. Let them know you're thinking of them by sharing this episode with them right now. Thank you, and I look forward to the next meditation conversation.